0: John 12, beginning in verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Unbelievers are probably oblivious, or at the very least, unconcerned, but their unbelief takes an emotional toll on the believers around them. Believing is a defining feature of our identity. It's in the name. We're believers. (laughs) And unbelief frustrates and confuses and troubles us. We wonder, how can you not believe? What more would it take to convince you? And of course, why won't you believe? Unbelief also gives rise to questions we ask of God. Won't you show yourself more clearly? How long will you let them persist in unbelief? And why does one believe and not another? Jesus wept for Jerusalem's unbelief as he rode into the city. And then he pleads with the people to walk in the light by believing in the light. And now he departs. Not only from this particular crowd, but from public ministry altogether. It seems that unbelief takes its emotional toll on Jesus too. The closer he gets to the cross, the more he wants to surround himself With believers. As he prepares, he withdraws from those who do not believe and here focuses his attention on his disciples. He's given the crowds all the signs that were appointed to his ministry. He's taught and taught and taught on who he is to establish faith or to condemn unbelief. He's given them more than enough. And now, with his own trial of faith squarely in view, Jesus withdraws from the unbelieving world. He and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives where he will focus on teaching them and on prayer. And then at the appropriate time, he will be arrested and taken to trial. But all of this happens away from the crowds of unbelieving Jews their next scene in the story is the ominous give us Barabbas and what's what shuts them out from this part of the story from this intimacy of time with Jesus and his father is unbelief Jesus has given plenty of time for consideration and hesitancy and now that time has passed Chapter 12 ends with Jesus teaching his disciples about belief and unbelief. Nothing new, essentially summarizing what his ministry had been about. But before we get to that, John also speaks to the subject. It makes sense. John saw what Jesus saw. But he saw it with eyes more like ours. Believing eyes, yes but not the perfectly faithful eyes of Christ, not eyes that had been there in the beginning with God. And so it makes sense that John, like us, might have been surprised by such large-scale unbelief. Having himself learned from the master on the issue, he helps us know what to think. First, because this is very hard teaching. Any conversation around unbelief inevitably includes the subject of eternal condemnation for those who do not believe. That's emotionally difficult. And how we reconcile that with divine love is no simple task. Second, from a human perspective, it makes little sense. That the Jews would reject Jesus. They knew the prophecies. They heard the preaching. They saw the signs. They already had the theological framework through which everything about Jesus could be rightly understood. But they did not believe. And as we read these Gospels, it's not unreasonable to think this unbelief doesn't make any sense. Within John's explanation of the crowd's unbelief, we also find answers to questions and accusations that we ourselves hear even today from unbelievers. Like, if God wants people to believe, why doesn't he just reveal himself to them? And Jesus and John hear that question and answer, he has! John told us from the beginning of the book that Christ is the complete and perfect self-revelation of the Father. And here he emphasizes in verse 37, the many signs that Jesus had worked among the people. Not mere miracles, but signs that point to his identity as God's son. Signs that should make it clear to anyone that Jesus is who he says he is. Again and again, Jesus shows himself to be the Father's self-revelation. He shows that what he does is in perfect fulfillment of centuries of prophecy. Israel should have known what to expect and what to look for and what to ask of the one who claims to be the Christ. And the truth is, they did know. They got fulfilled prophecies. They got claims of oneness with the Father. They got many miraculous works, including, never forget, the raising of the dead. All of this pointed to Jesus' identity. All of this is ample evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. God has revealed himself to the world in indisputable ways. What are people waiting for? A thundering voice from heaven? Oh, wait, he sent that too. (laughs) That was the last chapter. (laughs) Never forget, Christians, it's not about the evidence. Not for these crowds, nor for those who choose unbelief today. The persistence and the widespread unbelief in Jesus' own day shows the folly of those who think more evidence is all the world needs in order to believe. God has made himself known in the world that he's made. He's made himself known by revealing his image in the people that he's made. He sent his son whose witness and testimony has spread throughout the whole world in the scriptures. Unbelievers choose unbelief. And in one sense, John says, it couldn't be any other way. The critical moment in God's plan to save his people is the death of Christ. This can only be done in the hands of unbelievers who are willing to unjustly put the God man to death on a cross. Their unbelief is essential to the fulfillment of God's promises. And that means that the specific unbelief by specific individuals involved is not only foreseen by God, but is necessitated by his plan to save. And what makes unbelief so complex is that both things are true. It is absolutely true that every unbeliever chooses unbelief. Our first parents, in their sin and rebellion against God in Genesis 3, choose unbelief. Except for Christ, born of the virgin, every man and woman born since has inherited both the guilt and the nature of that rebellion. We're all born in sin. And we're all born slaves to sin. Imagine a life where we never chose to sin ourselves. And even in that life, we would still carry the guilt of Adam's rebellion. And if you think that's unfair, don't worry, because it's a non-issue. Because of our sin natures, we actively engage in sin as well. We choose sin and unbelief because it's what we want. And when people accuse God of making us puppets... They wrongly presume that he is forcing people to act against their will. but That's not true at all. God never made us act against our own nature or our own desires. We do what we want to do. Sin happens because, in fact, everyone does what they want to do. And in their sin nature, they want to sin. We are all bound by our own nature, Fallen human natures want to sin. They want unbelief. And that is what they will always freely and gladly choose. We initiate unbelief by our own desire. God had nothing to do with that. Therefore, without God's intervention, we cannot and will not do otherwise. We won't believe. God's not forcing unbelief. But God is the only one who could cause belief. He's the only one who can change our unbelief. The passage is littered with examples. Verse 37, they did not believe in him. Verse 33 gives you a reason. They loved the glory that comes from man. People do what they want to do. People follow what they love. This is why Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You will follow what you love. And unless God causes you to love the kingdom of God, you will love the kingdom of this world. And that's why the crowds didn't believe. As another pastor puts it, no one has the ability to believe unless the father acts upon his heart. It was John's inspired conclusion that God refused this, refused to do this for the crowds who heard Jesus and witnessed his miracles. And this is important. God is not arbitrarily assigning unbelief to morally neutral people against his will. He's not taking a room full of people, neither good nor bad, and saying, I'm going to make these good and I'm going to make those bad. Even when he blinds and hardens, he only solidifies the condition that they want for themselves. John places all of this within the context of Isaiah 6. In that chapter, remember, Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord's glory, the the train of his robe, the light, the fire, a vision of God's glory. And as happens when one is given a vision of the Lord and his glory, Isaiah is driven to despair and then to repentance. God cleanses him of his sin, and so Isaiah offers to serve as God's messenger. God agrees to this. He commissions him. He's going to send Isaiah out to the people, but he adds some bad news before Isaiah goes. He warns him that no one is going to listen to him. That the people are going to ignore him and reject him at best. And those that don't will insult and persecute him. Yet God is sending him anyway. Though the world will reject him, God will send his messenger. Because God will reveal himself to the people. His word to them will not change their choice of unbelief. No, it will actually confirm it. It will blind their eyes and harden their hearts, lest they see and understand. I said last week that when the New Testament quotes the Old, we should always look for the full context of the Old Testament passage. The author is bringing more in than just a verse or two. And John helps us do that here all throughout the chapter by repeatedly pointing to another section of Isaiah. Chapters 52 and 53, the famous suffering servant passages. There are at least 12 references in John chapter 12 to Isaiah's servant song. It's like John is painting a big neon arrow that goes from the suffering servant passages of Isaiah, pointing to Jesus and telling us, look here, focus here. And then given that identity of Jesus as the suffering servant, he quotes Isaiah 6 and concludes that Jesus fulfills this. Isaiah's experience, the other prophets' experience of taking the word of the Lord to the people and being rejected, those were just the shadows of this potent reality that would be fulfilled in Christ. That as God works out his purposes to save, he would reveal himself perfectly and fully to the world through Christ, and their response would be no different than it was for Isaiah. They would not believe. And the very sending of Christ hardened them in their unbelief. They did not understand the signs that Jesus was doing, the overwhelming evidence. Because their eyes had been blinded. God's judgment on their own chosen unbelief. So two things are clearly true. Individuals freely choose unbelief. And God foreordains, hardens, and uses that choice for his own purposes. Scripture leaves no doubt that both are true. So how do we reconcile them? How do we take this off of the academic page, out of the textbook, and believe with our hearts that both are true? How does the limited human mind, how does the doubting human heart accept both? The answer is in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And spoke of them. Belief. The belief that God will save. The belief that God's revelation in Christ is true. Requires a vision of his glory. And any time we have difficult or mysterious doctrines to accept or to reconcile. What our minds and hearts need is the very same thing that saved us. Belief a vision of the glory of God. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is one thing that can happen that will happen when your vision is not of the glory of God, but of the glory that comes from man. Everyone who chooses unbelief lacks vision of God's glory. But even some in in this context who couldn't deny what Jesus had done, the evidence was too overwhelming for who he was of Jesus' own glory. Even those who saw that, yet focused on the glory that comes from man, could only have a hidden faith. A faith that was expressed weakly and fearfully. A faith that could not survive engagement with the world. These are hard doctrines. Beliefs have consequences. I was listening to a Supreme Court case this week where people who have the beliefs that I and many of you have about God's design for men and women were described with content. And in fact, claimed by some to be worthy of discrimination. I should be discriminated against because of what I believe Scripture says. Following Christ will be costly. In fact, he warns you that following Christ will cost your whole life. And with a sacrifice that great required, what short of a vision of the glory of God will ever sustain you. Kids, what we're doing in worship, this morning, week after week, what we're doing in worship, what your parents are doing in your homes as they seek to raise you in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, all of this that we're doing for these 18 or so years that we have control over a large portion of your life, These are our attempts to put before you the glory of God. All of it. It's just our effort to try and show you what the glory of God is. So that as you go away from us and go out into lives on your own. You have a vision that can sustain you through the challenges and the difficulties that are to come. The result of growing up in the church, of knowing what you know about God's glory, means that your heart will never be at peace with unbelief. The upbringing will not make the pull of the world and of unbelief any less strong. I'm not saying there's some magic here that you'd never struggle with belief. I'm not saying that you will never choose unbelief. I'm saying it will never be easy for you. Because on the one hand, you'll have what you know to be true. The glory of God that Christ is who he says he is. And on the other hand, you'll have the social or career or academic consequences that come with choosing to be a believer in a fallen world. And the world will not allow you to fit in anywhere. If you choose the glory of God, the vision that we're trying to give you of God's glory does not guarantee that you'll choose it or that you'll choose belief. But we are setting a little bit of a trap, making sure that your heart will never be satisfied with unbelief. Oh, yes, there are those who try. Many who grow up the way you're growing up in the church, they'll try to be satisfied with under with unbelief. They'll throw off the glory of God and the shackles of the church later in life. And they'll say that they are free and that they are happy. But as one pastor puts it, they merely go on from year to year, secretly ill at ease and dissatisfied, knowing too much of God's glory to be happy in the world and clinging too much to the world to be happy in his glory. Isaiah believed. He had a vision of the Lord's glory. He believed, and so he was not afraid of the world's scorn. He said, here am I, send me. The disciples believed. They had a vision of the Lord's glory, and they said, Lord, where else would we go? And Jesus, who had the clearest vision of God's glory of all, Said, not my will, but thine. The effect of a vision for God's glory is that we follow Him. If you're struggling to follow God, what you need is not more rules or restrictions. You don't need more structure or discipline. You need a vision of the glory. Of God. Now be warned, at first it'll be unsettling. (laughs) Isaiah's first response to God's glory was panic. Seeing the glory of the Lord, he said, Woe to me, I am undone. But in repentance of that unworthiness, he experienced the glory of God's cleansing and forgiveness. That's what Jesus' followers saw in him. It's how we too were saved. That we don't just see the glory of the Lord in holiness, but we see it in mercy and in love. And that vision of God's glory also enabled Isaiah to accept the hard message God gave him. To take into an unwelcoming world that would not receive it. Isaiah heard that God would harden some in unbelief. That God was setting him up to fail in one sense. To take this revelation out to a people who would not and could not hear it. But you see what Isaiah did not do? He did not protest God's injustice. Having seen a vision of the Lord's glory, he knew that there could not be any injustice in God. This isn't just, well, he's God, he can do what he wants. This is the absolute conviction based on an encounter with the glory of God that God is good and that all that he does is good. And when it seems by looking at our circumstances so hard to believe in the goodness of God, what we should ask him for is a renewed vision of his glory. It's the only thing that can reset our perspective. One New Testament scholar applies that lens to this whole passage and the issue of belief and unbelief. And he concludes, God is not a cruel monster who with inward delight prepares people for everlasting damnation. On the contrary, look, he earnestly warns people. He proclaims the gospel. He states, as Jesus did again and again throughout his ministry, what will happen if people do not believe? And what will happen if they do? He urges them to walk in the light. And then, and only then, when people of their own accord and after repeated threats and promises reject him and spurn his messages, then he hardens them in order that those who were not willing to repent would not be able to repent. That's why there's no injustice. He hardens them in order that those who were not willing to repent would not be able to repent. You see, as Jesus himself puts it, condemnation is not the goal. It's only the just requirement of God's holiness. When we have a vision of God's glory, we don't cry out against his goodness or his justice. We cry out against ourselves. Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the king. Too much analysis of the difficult doctrines of Christianity usually has the result of putting God on trial. When Isaiah actually looked at God's glory, his first reaction was to see how far short he fell, not God. And when we contemplate unbelief, our analysis shouldn't fixate on what God does but on the righteous judgment warranted against our unbelief. We must call out to God for forgiveness. We must urge others to do likewise. We have to take seriously the fear of the Lord. We can't just hand wave this away. Anyone who will not ultimately turn to God in faith is rightly condemned by their unbelief. And all who do rightly find that Jesus came not to judge, but to save. We can be sure because Jesus concludes by saying that everything he speaks is backed up. By his father. Yahweh, the God of the universe, stands behind all of these promises and assurances. You know, when a promise is made, it's wise to consider the source. All of us have received promises from people who are, let's say, unreliable. Maybe they're devious, maybe they're just a bit forgetful. But either way, when we hear a promise from one of those people, we have no reason to trust that what they say what they say will happen is actually what will happen. And it's right to do that analysis. Why would I believe this? And in this text, Jesus says, when we ask, well, Who's making these promises? Why should I believe this frightful, horrifying word of God's judgment against unbelief? And if it's true, given the holiness of God and my sinfulness, why would I for a moment believe that I could be forgiven of it? And he says, because faith in Jesus' word is faith in God. Jesus is the Father's perfect and complete self-revelation. All of Jesus' authority is the Father's authority. He has all of the divine power at his disposal. And that power can free you from the chains of unbelief. We can freely choose to believe because Jesus, by the power of God himself, can give us new hearts. You can be completely Confident in the power of faith to save. It will not fail you. It will not be found lacking your own faith as feeble and as weak as it may seem to you at times. You need to know, Christian, that God himself stands behind your faith in Christ. You know, we look at paper money in this country and we say it carries the full faith and credit of the United States government. And most of us who've studied economics roll our eyes and say, oh boy, (laughs) that's not so encouraging. But your faith, your feeble, weak-feeling faith, your faith Riddled with acts of disobedience and unbelief, your life, even still with its moments of rebellion and doubt, what stands behind your faith is the full faith and credit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is secure, it is completely secure. Satan will tell you it's not. He'll tell you it's not enough. He'll tell you that when it all comes down to it, God is going to demand from you more than you have to give. And you need to go back to John 12 and you need to see what Jesus says here. Faith, your faith will fully satisfy the conditions of the covenant of grace. You are secure on the day of Christ's coming. He can be trusted to see you through to that day. And we should therefore be reminded that he will see us through, he says, not with stagnation, but with sanctification. You can become more like Christ because Jesus says you can. You can hear and keep his words because Christ says you can. And his power stands behind that promise to change you, that he, through his spirit, abides with you and you abide with him. That means no change is too hard, no worldly love is too strong, no habit is too ingrained, because the power of God stands behind the promise to make you more like Christ. What a word! What a word! But against the complexity of unbelief, against the sinking sand and uncertainty of a life with no promises from God, we can live this way. So will you? Will you live this way? Will you stop being afraid of the weaknesses of your faith? He opened your eyes to the gospel Of his son and stands behind his promise. You have everything you need to stand secure with him on the last day. Will you live that way? And will you stop being afraid of the power of sin? Will you stop saying I can't. It's too strong. I've been at this too long. He has broken the chains of sin and given you his power, his word, and his spirit to change. I don't stand behind this. That would do you no good at all. But he who calls you is faithful. And he says he will surely do it.